As we kick in, uh, I wonder if you've heard of a guy called Carl Power. Anyone heard of a guy called Carl Power? No, name doesn't ring a bell. Well, here he is. He's an infamous imposter. In 2002, here he is, managing to get onto the Silverstone podium after the British Grand Prix, just ahead of Michael Schumacher uh, as he celebrated his victory. The year before, here he is, walking onto bat for England cricket at Headingley before he answered his phone and people twigged who he was and then got sent right back off. Here he is on, in 2002, getting onto the centre court at Wimbledon, just ahead of Tim Henman's game. And then the big one, the most famous one of all, was in 2001, where he managed to sneak onto the pitch at a Champions League quarter-final and got into the team photo, the official team photo for Man United as they played Bayern Munich. If you know football, you'll know there's 11 players. If you count, there's 12 on the screen. He's the guy on the far left. And if you look in other photos, it's fascinating. If you Google it, Carl Power with a K, fascinating, because there's a moment, there's a video of it actually when he sneaks on. And um, uh, Gary Neville, one of the, one of the one of them kind of looks and goes, who's that? And he kind of quickly, quickly photos and stuff like this. Anyway, he is an infamous imposter to the point that he's now been banned for life from Manchester United, <laughs> apparently. But he spoke of this day as, quotes, it's still the best day of my life. He's the ultimate substitute, the supreme hoaxer, the imposter extraordinaire. Well, as we come to the end of this series that we've called This Little Light of Mine, we've got a question for all of us today. And the question is this. Do we have what you could call imposter gods? They look a bit like the real thing. They pretend to promise and offer the real thing, but in reality, we all know they're a long, long way from the God that we actually need. I loved what Luke said in his personal story earlier, that when all is stripped away, he is the only one that can carry you. And this morning, we're going to come face to face with the question about whether we have got imposter gods, things that we've made gods but that aren't really God's at all in our lives. So if you're joining us for the first time, over the last seven weeks, we've had some amazing stories where there are letters to different churches that highlight different issues within church life. So we looked at Ephesus, who were so passionate about truth, but they'd grown cold in their hearts. And some of us, if we're honest, know what that's like. We went to a place called Smyrna, where there was a church that was really poor because of the oppression and the persecution that they'd experienced, and yet they were defiantly standing firm in their faith in Jesus. We went to Pergamum. There was a church that was so full of love and compassion, but as a result were in real danger of compromising on the truth. We went to a place called Thyatira that was really growing and developing but was actually pretty tolerant also of wrong teaching. Then we went to a place called Sardis that was, had a great reputation. What a great church. But inside actually was dead, spiritually. And then last week, if you joined with us, 
We went to Philadelphia, not in America. It was such a small, insignificant, they felt they were getting nothing right, doing nothing of great significance, and yet they were faithful and patient. And so today, we go to a place called Laodicea, and we come face to face with a reality that they're a church, like so many of us, if we're honest, that is just too comfortable. They look like they're following Jesus, but instead, they've got other gods of their lives. They're relying on other things rather than the God. Their faith is not really in God. It's in these other imposter gods, these other substitutes, these things that they've made God in their lives. And how do we spot if that's us? If there are things that we depend on in life, we might not use the words of them being gods, but they're things that ultimately we live for. How do we determine if that's us? Well, it's not always easy to spot, but Jesus gives some clues. This is what he says in verse 15 to 16. Let me read it to you. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That is hugely challenging, friends. And if I can be honest for a moment, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently about me personally and my journey with Jesus, where am I at? But also about friends of mine who we kind of grew up, some of us we grew up in church together, some of us we became Christians at the same sort of time, and seeing the journey that different people have gone on in their faith with Jesus, and some of them now no longer calling themselves Christians at all, And Jesus once was center of their lives and now is nowhere on their radar. And what that journey has been, because sometimes it's so easy to think it would have been some moment of hardship that they went through that therefore kind of rocked their faith. But in reality, for nearly all of them, that's not the truth. What actually is the case for many of us when we lose our faith is that our eyes get focused on other things to bring us comfort and ease. Jesus shifts from being the voice we want to listen to to being one voice among many before then he's no voice at all. Because there's three types of people, it seems. Those who are really for Jesus over here. Those that are really against Jesus. And then there's the ones that's arguably a more concerning category that is just, yeah, whatever. Lukewarm is what Jesus calls them. And it's a really descriptive picture, isn't it? If you imagine on a hot day, just during the really hot period that we just had, I left a kind of half-drunk bottle of Coke in my car. And I was really hot, got in the car, opened it up. And you know that feeling when you're really hot and you want a cold drink and it's this sort of warm Coke. It's horrible. Or the other way around, on a really cold day and you long for a lovely warm cup of tea and you get there and it's kind of tepid that's of such a vivid picture because in both instances what's happened the drink has been consumed by the surroundings it's in and it's lost the temperature it needs to be and I guess the question for all of us is this am I in that position are we individually and even as a church Uh, And if I'm reflecting on this moment kind of in history, there's a real question here, isn't there? 
as we come out of the real trauma of COVID, many of us understandably reassess where we're at. But my reflection of looking at my own life and at churches around the place is there can be a subtle temptation that Jesus becomes one of many things we do in our busy schedules. And he used to at one point be at the center, but now we fit him in when we can if it's not amongst other things. And the question is, as you look at the trajectory of your life, as I look at the trajectory of my life, is Jesus subtly, week by week, being pushed to the periphery? Because for this church, there's three things, I think, that they've kind of elevated to the position of kind of most important in their lives. And I put the question, where do you fit with these three? It may be others for you, it may not be for you. But the first is pretty clear. Here is a church, they've got an imposter, if you like, that they're kind of making most important. And it's to do with wealth and finance and money. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. They're financially really comfortable. They're doing pretty well. Now, I'm guessing, if I was to ask, I'm not, so don't worry, don't put your hand up. In this kind of current moment of cost of living, how many of us are really comfortable financially? Most of us might not put our hand up, except we realize when we're trying to buy presents for each other. When you think, what do they really need? Oh, not very much, really. And it's not so much that we might say we're very wealthy, but the underlying thing here is clear for this church. Their security, their sense of safety is in their bank balance and their provision. G.K. Chesterton famously said, to be clever enough to get all the money, one must be stupid enough to want it. And for this church in Laodicea, they were one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. There was a major earthquake in AD 60, flattening so much in the region. Most places needed central Rome to help rebuild it, but not Laodicea. They were proudly, they'd got it sorted. They got enough in the bank. We don't need your help. We are resilient because we've got resources, thanks. And the church ended up looking a bit like that city didn't seem to need very much. If you'd have walked in Laodicea Christian Fellowship on a Sunday morning, you'd have seen nice people with their nice building, with their nice clothes and their nice lives and their nice houses and their nice cars. And they would have said to the vicar on the way out, lovely service, vicar. When I, it wasn't when I was growing up, that was a long time ago. When I was in my kind of heyday of music, I loved the Divine Comedy. Remember them? Any of them remember them? They had these lyrics in one of their songs. The cars in the churchyard are shiny and German, distinctly at odds with the theme of the sermon. And during communion, I studied the people threading themselves through the eye of the needle. I say that as someone with a German car. It's not shiny at the moment, (laughs) but it once was. Uh, And it's not out of kind of critiquing, but it is a sense, isn't it, about where does our security lie? I was chatting to a friend of mine recently who's quite senior in the Church of England. And we were chatting about the kind of national picture of church and where things are at. And I asked him a question, where in all the churches does he see? Where does he see those churches that are making what you could call resilient disciples? 
They're not just drawing a big crowd, but they're actually making people, just helping people to grow as followers of Jesus that are resilient and therefore able to go on and reproduce and make more you know, disciples. His answer was fascinating. He said, you'll find them on the smaller states. Because there are people, he said, that have got used to not having very much. So what does Jesus say to this church that have somehow bought into this idea that if I've just got enough, a little bit more in my bank balance, then I'll be okay? Well, this is what he says. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Jesus offers true, lasting riches that count, that endure, that get you through the stuff. Because at the end of the day, your bank balance might make you more comfortable in your hospital bed, but it won't get you out of hospital, is what he's saying. Give, let me buy from me the thing that will really give you security and safety. True, lasting riches, he says. So that's the first God, that they've elevated financial security. The second thing is this. There's something about external appearances. Laodicea, the town, was known for three things. Finances, a sort of banking center. Health, as we'll come to in a minute. And also for its fashion industry. It was a textile center. Rural people will have come to Laodicea to find the latest trends and the latest cut, a bit like Milan or, you know, Birmingham, whatever it might be. <laughs> I saw something really interesting recently. The University of Kyoto in Japan has an amazing thing about their graduation services. Here it is. They allow anyone to wear whatever they want to their graduation services. As a result... What they've got is they've got this growing thing where people actively try and really kind of make themselves memorable. It's fascinating. It's worth Googling. There's lots of very interesting ones. I love it. But the same is clearly not quite like this, but in Laodicea, there's a sense that how they appear to other people is crucial for them. Listen, again, this is what he says. Verse 18, you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. You don't need me to tell you that in our kind of connected digital social media world and TikTok and Instagram and all the stuff, there's so much focus on how we appear to other people, how we present ourselves. You don't need me to tell you that the influence of that, we all feel to a degree or another. But let me read you a quote from a book that I'm reading. I'm reading a book called Generations by someone called Jean Twenge. She's the woman, the psychologist, sociologist, who came up with all the terms about generations, like Generation X and millennials and all that. She, she came up with a term. Uh, she's written a new book called Generations, and, and she says this, talking about some research that Facebook have internally done. She says this, in 2021, a former Facebook employee leaked some of this uh, internal research to the Wall Street Journal. In the company's own studies, teenagers described exactly how their social media use actually led to negative feelings. Many in that research pointed to how social media ramped up social comparison 
the tendency to compare yourself with others and you always come up wanting, which is especially acute on apps like Instagram. And one in-depth internal study within Facebook concluded that teenagers experience, as a result of this, a downward spiral of emotions that actually is like grief. And particularly for teenage girls, the study found they wonder why their own bodies and lives aren't as perfect as those they see online. As a result, they feel insecure about themselves, become angry, and eventually withdraw. Now, we all know that to a degree. And some of us, therefore, try to present ourselves in such a way so that it hides what we really feel within. And what's fascinating is what Jesus offers. He knows. He offers them something to cover the shame that no amount of physical appearance can actually cover. The shame that Jesus covers himself. And I wonder if for some of us, there is definitely the external appearances in terms of looks and all that. But I think for many of us, it's not so much the kind of we want to be an influencer online. It's more as we want to just present something that we've got it all together. And so we hide when we come to church or we hide when we meet other people who are followers of Jesus. Or even kind of in life in general, we just hide a little bit of what's really going on. And Jesus offers the opportunity to take away the shame that means you have to hide. So you don't need to compare anymore with anyone else and anyone else's world. And the more we fix our eyes on him, the less self-comparison and the less weight on our shoulders. So that's the second God. First was health. Uh, first was wealth. The second is external appearances. And the third imposter God that they've got is actually to do with health. Laodicea was known for being a sort of medical center. And this is what Jesus says, verse 18. I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. The health benefits of the city were really clear. People used to develop you know, potions and ointments to put on wounds and eyes and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus basically says, only he can provide the salve that helps you really see. And I guess for some of us, and maybe even COVID has kind of put this weight on us, is we're aware the thing that we've put and elevated is our own health. I remember chatting a few years ago with somebody way beyond the walls of Riverside uh, who had been diagnosed with cancer and having a long conversation with her. And what was fascinating to me, I've had those sorts of conversations with lots of people, of course, even in my own family. But for her, this was different. There was an empty sort of fear that, that was tangible. Because up to this point, her life was really successful. Everything was great, you know, great life, great job, great direction, good house, relationships, sweet, all that. And suddenly here was something outside of the control. The rug was completely pulled away. And suddenly everything in life came tumbling down. And here Jesus offers the only true lasting care, the salve to bring clarity. Perhaps that's why COVID's made us rethink for many of us. 
So three gods. Wealth. External appearances. Health. All good things. Important things. But not God things. Because when we make them gods, actually the one true God gets sidelined. And as we head towards a close, there's a solution to this. But before we get there, I read an article uh, a while ago which really stopped me in my tracks. It was written by somebody who's not a Christian. And this person was reflecting on the state of the church in the UK and the kind of look what the church looks like and Christians within it in the light of some of the scandals and kind of some of the decline you see around. This is what he said. Fascinating article. I am not religious, he said. So it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Fascinating. So what do we do if, if we are honest and we admit we have got some imposter gods, things that are just a little bit too important for us? Well, Jesus gives some hope. Here it is, verse 19 to 20. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. That phrase, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, is a tricky one, isn't it? Because some of us, I guess, even now, might feel a little bit of challenge. A few years ago, I was uh, on a train and I had a devastating moment. It's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I was with a mate and we were on one of those sprinter trains with two carriages, you know, the really small ones. And on the train, there was me and my mate, a couple of other people, and then there was this young couple with a toddler. And the toddler was screaming, okay? Uh, and so I was chatting with my mate to the point we couldn't hear. And so I suddenly went, shh, to this toddler. The look on the toddler's face went from to silence and then to proper screaming. Fortunately, the parents didn't see or hear because the toddler was screaming in the ear. And I suddenly realized I felt so bad because it was just natural. I didn't mean, you know, I felt so awful. Why? Because I had no relationship with that child at all. It was not my role to give any sense of correction or any sense of steer. Whereas any of us that our parents know, the reason ultimately we want to help our children go in the right direction is because of love. And therefore Jesus does sometimes bring some words of encouragement and direction saying, actually, I have shifted a bit from your center, haven't I? And then what's the response? He's knocking at the door. And there's two responses for this. Some of us, we know that Jesus has been knocking for quite a while and we've been just trying to shut out the noise. And maybe even today, we sense that actually now might be the time to open that door back up again. For some of us, we know, if we're honest, Jesus is not where he should be in our lives. And we've let other things take the center so he becomes one voice of many. And this morning for us, it may be the time to say, Lord, I'm opening the door back to you whatever that looks like. And it may be even one or two of us for the very first time 
actually we can say yes to Jesus and open the door to him.